If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. And there is a theory as well that Churchill, after the war in 1945, after he lost the general election, travelled to Lake Como, which he did, and then spent some time scratching around in the villages around Lake Como looking for documents that Mussolini had left behind. That was Roderick Bailey talking about the aftermath of Mussolini's death in a lecture from our 2014 History Weekend at Malmesbury. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our fourth podcast of August 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This week we're broadcasting a lecture from our 2014 History Weekend at Malmesbury. The speaker was Roderick Bailey, a military historian who has written about the SOE in Italy during the Second World War. For his talk at Malmesbury, he delved into one particular aspect of these operations, the quest to kill Mussolini. First of all, I'll explain a little bit about the book, actually, because that's where these stories are revealed. Uh, and I'll tell you a little bit about me. So, yeah, as Matt said, I'm a historian at Oxford. I work mainly on the Second World War, but I also specialise in the study of SOE, which is on the title of the book there. So for those of you who might not know, I'm sure many of you do know what SOE was, but it's a special operations executive, which was a British organisation set up early in World War II to encourage resistance and carry out sabotage inside enemy territory. Now quite, quite often people associate it, even today really, with operations in France mainly, um, and that's in the images of women parachuting into France and being landed by Lysander in the middle of the night to, to encourage resistance and work with the, the Maquis and the French underground. That, of course, happened. But SOE, by the end of the war, its range and had, was, was global, really. It was active pretty much all the way through every theatre, from France and Scandinavia all the way to Burma and, and Malaya, where it was fighting against the Japanese. Now, um, over time, it's had, there have been several official histories commissioned of SOE. The, probably the classic one is SOE in France by a chap called MRD Foote, Professor MRD Foote. And that was in 1966, quite a long time ago. Periodically, they've published some more of these. And this, my one, is the latest one. And I was commissioned a few years to do that. And it was on fascist Italy, SOE's war against fascist Italy. Um, I should say something about official histories, because official sometimes conjures images of you know, whitewashes and that kind of thing. But actually official in this sense is that it was officially commissioned and I was given access to official records. But otherwise, the whole thing was hands-off and I was allowed to write it as I wanted to. And 
there's a lot of material in there which is quite hostile towards SOE and quite critical, really, about SOE and also MI6. But nevertheless, the book went through the various vetting procedures and no one took anything out. So it's a very honest account. And I was also able to use a lot of foreign archives as well. So that's Italian archives, FBI archives, all sorts of stuff. And was able to really get into great, great depth. Now, Italy, uh, you might think that Italy was perhaps not Britain's and the Allies' greatest enemy. If we think about today's popular image of Italy, it's not particularly favourable. I mean, you might think that Italy was particularly bad on the battlefield. Um, and of course, that's quite well documented, that Italy turned out to be quite, a, uh, quite, quite weak in conventional forms, forms of warfare. But when it comes to irregular warfare, uh, it's different. And when it comes to trying to encourage resistance inside Italy, it's even, even more different, and it's extremely difficult, as SOE found. And that's really why it was identified as a, a, a st- worthy of study, this SOE against fascist Italy topic, because the obstacles that SOE and the British face are, are extreme when they're trying to get resistance going in Italy, trying to work with local Italians, find them to, to work with. What I'm going to do today, really, is tell you about one of the things that SOE tried to do, which was to kill Mussolini. Um, and this is one of the stories that I was able to unearth from the archives that I've been working on and uh, tell for the very first time in this book. However, it's not the only story of, of assassinating Mussolini that, that's out there now. And the most famous one, if you go to Italy today, if you go to any Italian bookshop, you will find books about the assassination of Mussolini by the British in 1945. Now, this is a theory put about um, by a chap on the right there, and others as well. This, this is Peter Tompkins. Now, years ago, I was working at the Imperial War Museum as a historian, and Peter Tompkins came to see me. I'd never met him before, and I, didn't, I wasn't working on Italy at that time. But what Peter wanted to know was the extent to which the British had... Well, he was convinced, basically, that the British had assassinated Mussolini in 1945. Now, at that stage, I didn't know much about Peter Tompkins. But actually, during the war, he'd worked for OSS, which was the American equivalent of SOE, roughly. He'd had a very distinguished background as a historian and writer. And I was quite interested in what he had to say. And it took a little while, a little bit of digging, to realise that Mussolini's end, which is illustrated on the left here with a photograph that some of you may be familiar with, Mussolini effectively was, was killed by Italian partisans in 1945 and then hung by his ankles in Piazza Loreto in Milan. And these, it's quite a famous scene. These are, and this actually comes from a postcard of that event, which was circulated widely afterwards. And Peter was convinced that Mussolini's death had been at the hands of the British, that the British had persuaded the partisans to kill him, and that even a British officer had shot Clara Patacci, who was Mussolini's mistress. As I say, if you go to Italy today and look in some of the books that are there, they make a lot of this. And there's a lot of, well, there are some writers out there who are very vocal, who write about the British effectively killing Mussolini in 45. I was able to look at this in some depth, and there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever in any British archives that this took place. And it's not a question of things being redacted or taken out, because there are no suspicious holes in the archives or anything like this. It's, um, it really is just a conspiracy theory that's just got out of hand. So there's no evidence what really what, whatsoever of it. But Peter Tompkins and others were convinced of it and remain convinced of it. Um, but as I say, there's no evidence for it at all. In fact, the latest book on it suggests that the idea behind the British wanted to kill Mussolini was that there was a feeling that the British, Churchill in particular, and Mussolini had been in touch with each other earlier in the war and in 1945. And there was a concern, the theory goes, that the British were concerned that this would get out. And the idea was that Churchill had been trying to persuade Mussolini to join the Allies against the Soviet Union. And people like Tompkins and others have always thought that there were secret documents somewhere and secrets sort of remaining hidden 
that would have reeled Churchill to have been effectively trying to hold hands with the enemy and not really being very committed to the Second World War and trying to betray the Soviet Union. So that's the theory. That's why people think that Mussolini was killed by the British. But there's no evidence for that. And I think also there's no evidence really that that's the sort of thing that Churchill went in for. And there is a theory as well that Churchill, after the war in 1945, after he lost the general election, travelled to Lake Como, which he did, and then spent some time scratching around in the villages around Lake Como looking for documents that Mussolini had left behind. I think that's just a massive, really, misconception of Churchill's character that he cared so much about these tiny little documents coming to light, when these are theories that could easily be kind of publicly uh, dismissed. So Tompkins was convinced that SOE was involved in killing Mussolini. Uh, and where he was right was that, that SOE was involved in these kind of one-off operations, these sort of targeted operations. They weren't... Um, SOE wasn't just involved in encouraging resistance and working with the resistance groups. It also went in for kind of direct pinpoint operations. And these are three of them, which I hope you can see. So the bottom left, that's the Gorgopotamus viaduct in Greece, uh, which is quite a famous operation that SOE took, took, uh, undertook in late 1942. That's where they sent a team into Greece to work with, to basically to sabotage a key uh, viaduct and brought that down. It brought, brought SOE a lot of attention from the Allies and Allied generals and it made them look particularly effective. And it had some impact in, in disrupting German supplies getting to North Africa. Now, the top right is the Norsk Hydro in Norway. This is a very famous raid that SOE took, took, took part in. This is where they sent a team of Norwegian agents into Norway to try to disrupt Germany's atomic bomb plans. So in early 43, they dropped a group of Norwegians in who then sabotaged this um, industrial complex, this, this, power, power point, this power station complex, uh, and destroyed quantities of heavy water, which are used in the search and the production of atomic weapons. And the bottom right, some of you may be familiar with that photograph, that's Patrick Lee Fermer on the right, uh, another officer called Billy Moss on the left, and these two were sent into Crete to capture a German general in 1944. Some of you may have noticed that Patrick Lee Fermer's account of that has just been published. Finally. So these are examples really of these kind of pinpoint raids where they just sent in groups to work with no help from the resistance or even just minimal, minimal assistance. And so of course also went in for assassinations. So Tompkins was right about that as well. And this is probably the most famous one. This is Reinhard Heydrich, who was the German Reich protector in Bohemia and Moravia. Uh, he was also one of the key architects of the final solution. He was a particularly unpleasant individual, as you could probably guess. He was the Czech government in exile wanted him dead. And they approached SOE and said, well, what can you do to help us? And SOE trained two Czech agents and other Czech agents as well who assisted them and then dropped them into Czechoslovakia in 43, 42, 43. Uh, and as many of you may know, the operation was ultimately successful in terms of killing Heydrich. The two Czech agents ambushed his car, which is the bottom right there. Uh, it was all a bit of a bit of a mess. They had a Sten gun which, which jammed and didn't fire, and then they threw a bomb at the car itself. The bomb exploded, damaged the back wheel, as you can see. That's the car itself after the raid. The wheel there was damaged. Heydrich was lightly wounded. A piece of um, shrapnel seems to have gone through the side of the, the car, going through some sort of stuffing in the, in the chairs, and that seems to have carried some sort of poison into him, and he died of blood poisoning a few days later. Also something that's interesting is that the reprisals taken after this operation were, were, were particularly horrendous. So the German reaction to this was particularly awful. Um, again, Ladici, and there's another town as well in Czechoslovakia, which some, well, Czechoslovakia then, um, which maybe some of you may have heard of, which were, which were entirely destroyed and the entire population either executed or sent to concentration camps. Okay, another sort of type of assassination operation that SOE went in for. Uh, this is Operation Savannah. This is in 1942, 41, 
where SOE essentially sent in, wanted to send in a group of five men into Brittany to kill uh, a group of Heinkel German aircraft navigators who were, who were spearheading the raids on Britain at the time. And the RAF had turned to SOE saying, well, what can you do to help us? We need to disrupt these, the blitz, really. Uh, and SOE said, well, what about this idea? And the RAF initially were on side, but in the end, this chap, this is Charles Portal, who was chief of the Air Force, uh, the Air Staff, decided that this sort of activity was really quite uh, unethical and decided to oppose it. In the end, the operation, he was convinced that it would take place, and SOE did drop its group of five Frenchmen into Brittany to kill these men. But in the end, the Heinkel air crews changed their routine and the, and the attack never came off. Now, Portal's quite interesting on this because here he is opposing SOE's assassination on ethical grounds. And yet, of course, he, of course, was a proponent and big supporter of strategic bombing of Germany, which included the targeting, the deliberate targeting of civilian areas. Interestingly, he also, in 1943, proposed a plan to kill Mussolini. And this was an idea put forward by Bomber Harris. And it, the idea was to use Guy Gibson's dam busters of Lancaster's. This was only revealed in 2010. It hasn't really had any, hasn't had much publicity. And I was able to do a little bit of work on it during my research and have to dig a little bit deeper. So the idea was that Gibson would lead his dam busters in over Rome, pretty much at roof height. And they would pick out two premises where Mussolini might be, which is his main residence in Rome and his kind of, his also his home residence in the outskirts, um, the Villa Tolonia, I think it's called, just outside, outside Rome. And the idea was to basically obliterate these two areas. And this was in the summer of 43. And at that point, actually, Eden, Anthony Eden stepped in and said, well, this is ridiculous because, A, Mussolini's kind of, by now, summer of 43, is, is not, he's not very popular because the war is going particularly badly for the Italians. So let's just see what, what can happen. And he might get replaced by somebody more popular. And the other thing was that Eden thought that bombing Rome was a particularly bad idea because, this, as he put it, knocking the old city about was not really going to win that many friends for the Allies as they destroyed parts of the Vatican, some of the most you know, gorgeous, beautiful areas of Rome. So in the end, Eden said, no, we're not doing this, and the, and the plan never came off. Another plan that never came off uh, was a plan to kill Hitler, which some of you may have heard of as well. This is Operation Foxley. This was dreamt up, or planning for this began in 1944, and it was quite serious to begin with. They had some, it was a dedicated plan and there's a lot of debate goes on inside SOE's headquarters and goes up to other areas of the government as well as to whether they should really go ahead with this. And they put in quite a lot of research to give you some idea of that. Okay, so I'll let you read the first two bits, really. That's probably the... This gives you some idea, really, of the detail they went into. This is about poisoning Hitler, okay? And I'll read it out, actually, just, so, just in case some of you haven't brought your specs. Hitler, according to reliable information, is a tea addict. He always drinks it with milk. Since the milk is poured first into the cup, it is unlikely that the tea's opulescence will be noticed as it came from the teapot. Hitler is said to be extremely fond of apple juice. Uh, the reports that he drinks enormous quantities of black coffee, which have appeared in the popular press from time to time, are denied by PW, that's Prisons of War, who was body servant to Hitler from 1936 to 1940, as sort of bodyguard. Uh, although a dining car attendant from von Ribbentrop's train declares that this is not so, and he personally served the Fuhrer with coffee and milk at the Berghof, Hitler may well have formed the habit in the course of the war. Now, the reference to the train is quite interesting. There were two plans came up, really. One was to try and kill him on the train. And that's not necessarily by, as you might expect, by sabotaging the, plane, the train. SOE was quite adept at railway sabotage by 1944. However, um, the idea here was to poison him and to try and get, either try and get poison into some of his food products or actually get it into the water supply of the train, so the drinking water, and do it, and do it that way. But in the end, most of the planning went into an idea to kill him here, which is the Berghof. This is Hitler's home in the Bavarian Alps. 
And the idea here was to try and bump him off when he was either on his morning walk. He went on a walk every morning before breakfast in the grounds around the Berghof. And the idea there was to either kill him with a sniper uh, or fire a bazooka at the tea house. There's a little tea house just outside. And the idea was just to fire rockets into that and kill him that way. There were a couple of other ideas, but in the end, the sniper idea was the one that they, they settled on. And to give you an idea again of the detail they went into, if you remember from that previous slide, there was a reference to his bodyguard who'd been with him. This is him here, actually. You can actually see this is a photograph taken at the, at the Berghof. And this chap here is the, is the guy here. So the, that shot was taken down there. And then there, you probably can't see it, but it says PW informant, and the line comes down there. So they were interrogating prisoners, and they were getting information from all sorts of sources. In the end, though, this operation was never authorised. Momentum picked up as the Allies came close to defeating Hitler. There was a feeling that... Hitler was making such a meal of the war anyway that it was probably best to just let him get on with it. And they were cautious of someone who was better than him, more adept at, at dragging Germany out of, out of it. And they were concerned that that might happen, among other reasons. OK, so SOE did try and kill Mussolini, as I mentioned at the beginning. And I'll now talk about that plan. And as, you'll, as I explain it to you, you'll probably think it's outrageously sort of amateurish. Uh, and it was. So it's important to keep in mind, however, as I tell you about that, a few, a few things about how difficult it was for SOE and the British in general to really get to grips, fight a clandestine war against Italy, so inside Italy. It's important to remember, I think, that Italy had, been, had voted Mussolini in. The population might not have been particularly keen on him, but they certainly weren't pro-allied. So encouraging country in what was an enemy country rather than enemy-occupied country was a particularly hard thing to do. So you've got a population in Italy who aren't that really pro-allied, who are fairly favourable towards the fascists because they brought various good things. Propaganda and publicity that the fascists had, had, had used had done a very good job at, of boosting popular support for Mussolini and others. And of course, for the first two years of the war, Italy was on the winning side. So these are all very powerful reasons for Italians not to even really think about wanting to resist. It's a different situation to places like France where you've got a population who's occupied and really under the thumb and there are terrible reprisals being committed all the time against anyone tempted to resist. Now, the problem with this is that SOE found it very, very hard to find people who are willing to help it and go back into Italy and work and try to get resistance going. This is the very first agent that SOE sent in to Italy. His name is Fortunato Picchi. And to give you an idea, really, of the kind of background of some of the early agents they had, Fortunato Picchi, before the war, had been head waiter in banqueting at the Savoy. He's, he was in his 40s, so he was in his 40, 42, 43 when he was sent into Italy in 41. He was not sort of the hard-bitten veteran of the Spanish Civil War that SOE was actually out for. They were kind of wanting these sort of hardened anti-fascists. And they just couldn't find them. And Picchi they found after he'd been interned on the Isle of Man with many, many other Italians. And SOE went up there and swept through the Italians. Couldn't find anyone really willing to, who was of the right sort, to really help it. Brought a few people away, went through them, sifted through them. Some were veterans of the Spanish Civil War, but not many at all. And Piki was the, was the one they, they found. And he goes back to Italy in the beginning of 41 as part of the first parachute drop in British military history, which, was, which no one's ever really heard of. It was to uh, sabotage, again, another little aqueduct in southern Italy. So it was the first parachutes. These were commandos, parachute train commandos, 30 of them. And Piki went in as an interpreter. So he was attached to them as a translator. And the whole operation didn't really work. Uh, everyone was rounded up and captured. And Piki was captured. This photograph on the left, again, something that's important to keep in mind here is how good the Italians were at counter-subversion, at basically addressing this sort of thing. Piki's cover story was that he was a Frenchman. Um, now, as soon as he started talking, the Italians realised this wasn't the case, and they started to dig into his background. 
So the photograph on the right is, was taken from his family in, in Tuscany, and the photographs on the left, those are photographs taken of him just before he was executed, because he was executed as a traitor. So those photographs are taken of him. Those, those come from Italian archives on the left, uh, as does the right one. This is another example. Sadly, this is the next SOE agent that went into Italy. This is 1942 now. Uh, this is Antonio Gallo, who, come, who came from a little village outside Verona. Now, Gallo was sent into Sicily in 1942, in the end of 1942. But again, it was a desperate mission that he was sent on, that he was put ashore by submarine with no safe house whatsoever, so no contacts ashore at all. And the idea was that he and the companion he was with, who was an MI6 agent, would somehow try and make contact with the local Sicilians and that they would somehow find friendly Sicilians to help them, which understandably, was quite a desperate, if you look at it now, it was a very desperate thing to do. And Gallo was picked up within 24 hours, and he too was taken back to, to Rome, tried as a traitor, and executed. And this photograph again comes from the Italian archives. Those are his fingerprints, and those are the photographs. Italians had a um, strange habit of photographing people just minutes, really, before they were executed, for reasons I haven't quite worked out. And this is where the executions, well, this is really just to bring you home the grittiness of this. And also, I think, just to underline the risks that these Italians, who are trying to work for Britain and trying to oppose fascism, were doing for the British, their willingness to help for the British and the risks they were taking and the dangers they were running. This is where they were all executed. This is a chair outside Rome, uh, in a fort outside Rome. For those of you who know Rome, um, I didn't know this until I started doing the research, there's a circle of fortresses outside Rome, all 19th century fortresses, which they were kind of constructed as a ring to defend Rome. People never really look at them. They're all decaying. They're huge and very attractive, actually, but they're all totally empty now. And this is one of them south of Rome called Forte Brevetta. And during the war, it was already obsolete and totally overgrown. And the Italians used it as the execution spot. So they would take all captured agents to Rome and then they would take them and execute them there. And the idea behind the chair is that they would put the agents with his back to the firing squad. So the Italian way, or the fascist way of assassinating traitors was to, you know, to, was to humiliate them really by having them face away from the firing squad. So they would be bound in the chair, astride the chair really, with their back and the back of their head exposed. Okay, just again to underline the difficulties really that SOE was facing. This is the Arco della Pace in Milan. Uh, now in 1942, there was a rendezvous here between a British agent and some uh, members of the Italian resistance, which the SOE had contacted from Switzerland. There was an Italian resistance group it had heard about. And SOE sent a man here to, to hand over some explosives to, a, a, to an Italian resistance fighter. And for the next year and a half, SOE sent in an enormous amount of, of weapons and explosives, and they dropped them from the air as well, and they landed from submarine, all to go to this resistance movement. Now, this is pretty much the only area of progress that SOE made. Uh, and in the end, it was shown later. Oh, this is the first suitcase that was sent across at the rendezvous. So as you can see, it's a good example of basically the, the, the confidence of the British in what they were doing. That's the suitcase on the left, carrying various bits and pieces. On the top there, those are time pencils, which are used top right, time pencils, which are used for detonating explosives. Those are plastic explosives on the right there. And just to underline the confidence of the British that they were getting the things to the right people, you can probably see that they've wrapped these things called fog signals, which are other detonating devices, in a copy of the Daily Telegraph. So that had been sent into enemy territory, a copy of the Daily Telegraph, basically saying, this is the British, this is what we're doing. However, this is the very confident, for a year and a half, reports on all of this was go, were going up to Churchill until, until the armistice, until Italy surrendered. However, this photograph was taken 24 hours later after the rendezvous by Italian counterintelligence. So from the very moment that the first contact was made, the Italians were running the whole thing. So all of these explosives and everything that was sent into Italy by the British ended up in Italian hands. And the British, the whole thing was just a fiction and the British never achieved anything. Okay, so then we come to the plan to kill Mussolini. Now, another thing that 
You might think Essay might have considered was killing Mussolini quite, quite early on, because it seems quite a, an interesting way of decapitating an enemy country and an enemy government. Now, Essay did have contact with various experienced anti-fascists who were willing to help it during the war. They were quite, a lot of them were quite elderly, so they weren't really fit enough to be parachuted back into Italy, but they helped and they advised and they, they, gave, they shared their opinions in London and elsewhere. None of them ever suggested killing Mussolini because it was such, from their experience during the 20s and 30s, it was impossible to get anywhere near him. Now, this is the woman who got closest to killing Mussolini. This was in 1926, April 1926. Her name's Violet Gibson. Some of you may have heard of her, um, but perhaps not. Um, she was the daughter of an Anglo-Irish lord and had had, was not well and had been in a sanatorium in London beforehand and then went out to Rome where she tried to kill herself, first of all, with a revolver and then decided to have a go at Mussolini. And in April 1926, he'd been giving a speech and he came out of the speech in Rome and she pushed herself to the front of the, to the, uh, of the, of the crowd and then levelled a, a revolver at his face from a distance of about six inches and, and pulled the trigger. And the bullets... The, the gun fired, the bullet came out, and it just nicked the bridge of his nose. And there are many photographs of him sort of sporting these kind of plaster over his nose afterwards. But that's it. Otherwise, it was people throwing bombs at him and trying to shoot him. No one ever becomes really close. Plenty of people try to do it, but they never really get, get close. And it becomes almost impossible from 1930 onwards. OK, so the plan to kill Mussolini emerged from in 1942, the beginning of 1942, when SOE was looking more, again for more recruits. And eventually it found a man in East Africa, because East Africa had been overrun by the British. There were a lot of internment camps containing a lot of Italians who were, who'd been overrun and captured. And SOE, still in this desperate search for recruits, went through these camps in, in East Africa and found actually quite a few volunteers. Some of them were you know, Italian soldiers, and that was actually what SOE was after. They wanted trained, trained people who were... And these were anti-fascists, they were Jews, they were socialists, and that, that kind of background. Uh, and the man they found was called Giovanni Di Junta. And he says, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll do this. I'll, I'll, I've got this idea. I'll kill Mussolini. Uh, and if you look in the, the, the files, there's no, there's no one file. You have to piece it together from little scraps and things. But the skeleton plan, really, as it is, is that the British would take an Italian anti-fascist, someone who's you know, an assassin, a proposed assassin. And the big problem here was trying to get him back into Italy because they couldn't, at that time... Britain was really kind of suffering a bit in, the, in North Africa. They didn't have the aircraft to parachute anyone in. There were no submarines around. Malta was getting a big hammering, so they couldn't use that as a submarine base. Um, and this problem of trying to get someone into Italy in a convincing way that they can, start to, they can actually start to work underground, it was a big problem that SOE had all the way through the war. So the idea here was that they put him in an Italian prisoner of war camp, in other words, a camp with other Italian prisoners. And... Um, and he would then, and then he would kind of fake an escape, or they'd help him fake an escape. So he'd break out of an Italian camp. This would be in the Middle East, in Palestine. And this, this the assassin, ideally in the company of a genuine fascist Italian soldier, so it looked more convincing. They would then make a break for Turkey, and in, which was neutral. And then in Turkey, they would contact the Italian authorities. There's an Italian embassy there. The Italian embassy would go, okay, brilliant, you've just escaped. And then they'd repatriate them back to Italy, whereupon the assassin would obviously undertake his real mission and he would mount the operation alone and try and, and go, about, go about killing Mussolini. Now, this, that was the plan in nuts and bolts, really. And it, it went to London, and it was knocked around in London, and they all thought uh, there are various kind of colourful colorful descriptions of it as a scatterbrained project that revealed a poverty of operational planning and things like this. But in the end, quite remarkably, it gets the green light, which is quite extraordinary, because Foxley, the, the German plot to kill Hitler, 
Um, much more planning, much more, much more, much more serious. That was that was scrapped. But this plan to kill Mussolini was pretty much just, you know, put in put in process. And Pose assassin is trained, and he also they they do the best they can do to prepare him. They give him some diamonds. That's the only thing they can do because they can't because he's got to break out of a, you know, break out of a prison camp. He can't go with weapons and things. So all they give him is diamonds, and they also they carry out plastic surgery to his face, which is quite an extraordinary thing because I've always associated that with sort of Hollywood films and things. And I didn't know they did it during the war. Uh, and this was the first case I found out about that. And they did, they, so he actually goes under the knife and has his face changed to do this. And the assassin they use is De Junta. So he's the chap that actually came up with this plan in the first place. So the plan gets as far as having him having been issued with diamonds, having had his face changed, having been, and then they install him in the prisoner of war camp. So he's, he's ready to go. And then it's at that point, however, that the British headquarters that have trained him, this is in Cairo, another Italian who he'd been training with just sort of knocks on the door one, says, one day and says, actually, hang on a minute, there's something you need to know. And it turns out, to cut a long story short, the Dejunta, the proposed assassin, had become so excited about his, this plan that he was doing that he told people about it. <laughs> so, so this other Italian who was this hard-bitten um, anti-fascist, you know, this, this is the other Italian who kind of, kind of said, look, we can't do this. So the whole thing starts to go in, into reverse. So they pull De Junta out of the camp and they bring him back to Cairo. And this is in 1942. And at that point, he just disappears from the, the, the records. I, have no, I had no idea at all what happens to him. The last clue is that SOE give him to MI6. So SOE and MI6, two different organisations. MI6 also has an office in, office in Cairo. Uh, and, and the last thing is that SOE have given him to MI6 to do things with. So that's kind of the story. But then to follow it up, I took advantage of this because I had a, like, a very brief biography of De Junta, where he came from, his age and his, and his name, not even his full name. Oh, I should say also, actually, so just quickly, so this is Mussolini. By the time De Junta had been given the OK to go, he'd also been given another target. And this is Roberto Farinacci here, sitting down here. On the, in, he's actually in bed here after he'd blown off one of his own hands fishing with grenades in Ethiopia. So he'd gone fishing with grenades in a lake and blown... Farinacci was a particularly unpleasant individual, and in London they thought he was actually a better target than Mussolini. He was very anti-Semitic, very pro-German, very pro-German alliance, and he comes across as this kind of sort of low-rent Bond villain. So because he has, he ends up as a nasty piece of work. He was called a castor oil man of fascism, and that's because he and his thugs in the 1920s used to ambush sort of opponents of Mussolini on the street in Rome and force them to drink castor oil, which would then have you know laxative. Uh, effects and that was the sort of thing they went in for and this is him you can't quite see it really but his left hand is there that's the real one but you can't see he was given a new metal hand so he's this kind of villainous metal-handed rather unpleasant individual so he would have been a quite a good target um so you have these two people so to follow up this i actually went to sicily to trick us de junta i had this very short biography of de junta came from sicily came from a little village in sicily and that was it and again i lose track of him in 42 so I went back to a place called Troina, which is in eastern Sicily. This was a couple of years ago, just before I finished the book. And this photograph was taken by Robert Kappa, who is, as you probably know, war photographer. Very accomplished, very distinguished war photographer. Um, and Kappa joined the Sicily campaign in 43, he was attached to American troops. And American troops overran the village of Troina in 43, which was knocked about. Actually, this is the main lane in. This is a huge, obviously, these are American soldiers at the top. This is a shot by Kappa, and that's just the road blown, blown away there. So the town received a massive battering, but the town archives survived. And I went into the town archives, which was quite good fun in itself, because when I arrived, there were four archivists there. We just went and turned up and they said, look, you can't, you know, the town mayor says that you can't have access to these records. 
And then they said, but we don't like the town mayor, so basically you can have us, <laughs> you can see what you like. So that's what. <laughs> so yeah, so we rummaged around in the, these huge ledges, enormous ledges, and yes, managed to piece together the Troy and uh, Dejunta. This, he did come from the village, he was a real person. His family came from there, the name was accurate. He came from a very good family, all these sorts of things. It also showed two other things it showed. One was that he never came back to the village. So 42, that was the cutoff, that was it. He never came back to Sicily. So they didn't know either what had happened to him. And the other thing, I found that one person who remembered him, who was the family lawyer, who then had been a boy in the 30s, and he said that um, De Junta was best understood as someone who kind of navigated life by fantasy, so that anything he said, just don't, just don't really believe. So the plan that he'd had to kill Mussolini and all the enthusiasm he'd had, it was probably best to kind of take it with a, with a pinch of salt. Now, the very last thing that happened, because my, the book came out in May, and this is an extraordinary coincidence. So a month, okay, remember, I, I lose track of De Junta in autumn 42, so just when he's been hauled out of the prison camp. Um, I had an email from someone at Merton College, Oxford, so that's about, I don't know, 500 metres from my, my office, saying, I think you've written about my grandfather. So, was, so this was Giovanni De Junta, and his grandson sent me an email saying... Um, <laughs> Uh, so we, had, we met for coffee, and he said, which is, there was, I couldn't really, there was, that was an extraordinary coincidence. And then he said, oh yeah, my uncle's been doing some family history at exactly that moment. So there were two things that sort of came together, and I was slightly stunned by it all. So we went for coffee, and he explained that the family didn't know either. So the, the grandfather didn't, didn't come back, and they have nothing left from him in, from 42 um, at all. But the only things that uh, they could produce me were, were these things. So that's him, the top left, which I, I didn't know existed. I hadn't any photograph of him. And that's him up there. That's Giovanni de Junta at the left. That was taken in 26. That's before his surgery. And what's actually interesting is that the story of... OK, even though SOE, the, the plan was pulled into reverse and didn't work, what has seems to have happened is that, the, if you remember, the Italian who kind of told on him, who'd actually said, no, look, we can't do this because he's, he's just told me everything... He was later sent into Sicily and was captured and interrogated and executed. Now, during his interrogation, he told the Italians about De Junta's plan, but he seems to have done it in a particularly effective way in order to convince the Italians that it was still up and running. So you find documents like on, on the right here. This is from the Ministry of Interior. This is what the family gave me, which I didn't know about, which are now incorporated in the paperback, which will come out sometime in the next year or two. But in here on the right, this is a, a note from the Ministry of Interior in Rome out to various border agencies saying, OK, look, we've got this guy called De Junta, look out for him, he's going to be travelling in as an escaped prisoner of war. And it also details, which is great for me, it also details the plastic surgery that he'd had. So it talks about him having a, a, narrowed, a narrowed nose, um, chiselled sort of cheeks, a chin that had been somehow moved backwards, which is done, I think, by breaking it, basically, and removing bone. And, and well, oh, yeah, and there was, the last one was there was a scar as well. There's a scar, he had a scar on his upper lip, and they kind of elongated that or up, up to his face to make it even larger, which I thought was a bit odd because I thought they might try and conceal it, but actually they made it far more dramatic. So you've got this scarred individual. And this on the right is this, this uh, signed by Carmino um, Senise, who is in charge of the ministry. He's the Minister of the Interior. So it actually went all the way up to this. So it just shows you really what SOE could do uh, by accident almost. <laughs> but it also shows you actually, you know, you can, you can risk people's lives. You can send them in by submarine and you can parachute them in. And you, can, you are, particularly with Italy, you are endangering people in, in ways that even they don't really know, particularly Italy, because it was so tough. But this does show you what you can do if you just engage in 
propaganda, in, in whispers, as they were called, in just circulating rumours. Thank you. That was Roderick Bailey speaking at our 2014 History Weekend in Malmesbury. And tickets are now on sale for our 2015 events, which include weekends at both Malmesbury and York, and feature speakers such as Melvin Bragg, Michael Wood, Susanna Lipscomb and Yanina Ramirez. You can find out more and book tickets at historyweekend.com. And a number of talks have already sold out, so please do ensure you get your tickets soon to avoid disappointment. If you'd like to read more from Roderick Bailey, his book, Target Italy, The Secret War Against Mussolini, 1914-1943, is out now in the UK and the US, published by Faber. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And don't forget that the September issue of BBC History magazine is currently on sale. Inside this month's edition, we have articles on Anne of Cleves, the Blitz, the French Terror, and the secrets to being a successful monarch. You can get hold of our September issue in all good news agents and digitally. And we're also continuing our trial whereby you can listen to the articles in the magazine. These audio versions can be found in our iPad and iPhone editions and on the website historyextra.com forward slash September audio. To give you a taster of this audio edition, here's an article entitled A Dog's Eye View of Paris, written by Chris Pearson and voiced by Sally Bailey. A Dog's Eye View of Paris Parisian dogs have hunted criminals, been eaten as a delicacy with peas and filled the streets with poo. Chris Pearson, who has been researching the history of dogs in cities, traces their impact on the French capital over the past 200 years. Biting. Mad dogs and paranoid Frenchmen. Dog bites alarmed many Parisians as fears of rabies stalked the 19th century city. Rabies anxieties led some doctors, vets and other commentators to call for the eradication of dogs from French cities. Among them was army officer Alexandre Roger, writing in 1813, who lamented how rabies could strike anyone, rich or poor. To minimise the risk of rabid dog bites, the police prescribed the muzzling of dogs in public places and targeted unmuzzled dogs for destruction. But the muzzling orders were often ignored and poorly enforced, while some doctors and vets labelled them dangerous because spontaneous rabies was more likely to develop in restrained and repressed dogs. Animal protectionists, for their part, portrayed muzzles as cruel and ineffectual. The French chemist Louis Pasteur's development of a rabies treatment in the mid-1880s did not eradicate fears of dog bites. 
The press reaction to Paris's newly minted police dog unit in the early 20th century dwelled on the possibility that police dogs might bite innocent Parisians even if the dogs spent much of their time muzzled. More recent fears over dangerous dogs suggest that dog bites remain a source of concern and controversy. Crime fighting. Four-legged agents of the law. At the dawn of the 20th century, fear of crime in Paris was soaring. Lurid newspaper articles routinely portrayed the city as a wild, dangerous place where violent street gangs, so-called Apaches, preyed on hapless citizens. The police needed to fight back, and fast, and so enlisted the services of Paris's pooches. Drawing on the experience of police dog units in Belgium and Germany, French law enforcers started to train dogs to identify criminals and defend themselves against Apaches. Scientists and philosophers had long posed the question, are dogs intelligent? For the police, the answer was a definitive yes, and they promoted their dog's mental dexterity and physical prowess at dog shows, and many newspapers enthusiastically reported on the exploits of the four-legged agents of the law. Such was these canines' apparent success that Apache gangs reportedly trained their own dogs to attack the police hounds. But doubts soon began to emerge about dogs' intelligence. Could they really distinguish between criminals and innocent citizens? With such concerns rising, the attempt to turn dogs into canine crime fighters floundered during the First World War and was only resurrected in earnest in 1965. Eating Dog Cutlets with Petit Pois During the 1871 Prussian siege of Paris, hungry and wealthy Parisians famously devoured the contents of the city's zoo, as well as cats, rats and dogs. Adolphe Michel, editor of the daily newspaper Le Siècle, attended a dinner where dog cutlets with Petit Pois and brochettes of dog liver appeared on the menu. The dog cutlets were over-marinated, he concluded, but the brochettes were tender and completely agreeable. We don't know for sure exactly how much dog meat humans actually ate, and reports of their consumption have undoubtedly been exaggerated. In any case, modern Parisians have paid far more attention to what dogs eat rather than what they taste like. As far back as the 19th century, public hygienists were praising stray dogs' proclivity for scavenging harmful debris from the streets including infected carcasses covered in flies, so doing their bit to keep the city clean. Since then, countless owners have tried to give their dogs a more refined diet. Just like their British and American counterparts, French vets have long advised dog owners to provide their pets with a balanced diet of bread, vegetables and meat. And by the late 19th century, they were being bombarded by adverts for Spratt's dog biscuits, a mixture of processed flour, vegetables and meat powder. Defecation. The dirty war on dog poo. The streets of Paris are infamous for being littered with dog mess, but canine excrement only emerged as a public health problem in the 20th century after human and other animal wastes had been largely removed from the streets. In the 1920s, doctors and city councillors became alarmed at the diverse range of dog excrement splattered across Parisian pavements, which harboured harmful microbes and tapeworms. But reluctant to confront dog owners, the city authorities did little to tackle the problem until the election of Jacques Chirac as mayor in the late 1970s. 
With the number of Parisian dogs seemingly reaching breaking point, Chirac's administration launched educational campaigns, constructed dog toilets and brought the infamous motocrots onto the streets of Paris. Adapted to scoop the poop, these motorbikes and their riders scoured the streets to much press and public ridicule. But this technological fix was not enough to remove the estimated 20 tonnes of dog excrement deposited daily on the capital streets. It was not until the enforcement of fouling fines in 2002 that progress was made. Yet dog poo remains on Parisian streets and continues to spark public health concerns, attract the ridicule of foreign observers and provide evidence, for some, of widespread incivility in the capital. Walking. The curse of the canine vagabond. Owners walking their dogs are a ubiquitous presence in Paris. Such is the importance accorded to walkies that busy Parisians can now pay for someone to walk their dog in Fontainebleau Forest, 40 miles southeast of the city, while they are at the office. Yet the authorities haven't always been so relaxed about the movement of dogs across the city. In the 18th century, merchants, artisans and others were banned from letting their dogs loose on the cities at day or night. This legislation became even more stringent in the 19th century when stray dogs were widely reviled for undermining the myth that dogs' main role was to serve humans as loyal companions. Strays symbolised disorder. Observers criticised their fondness for public fornication in the supposedly modern city and, like human vagabonds, were treated as a threat to the rest of the population. Dying from pet cemeteries to industrial slaughter. Attitudes towards dead dogs lay bare the contradictions in man's relationship with canines in modern Paris. The pet dogs of wealthy Parisians could be buried as if they were human. In 1899, feminist writer Marguerite Durand and lawyer Georges Hamois opened the world's first pet cemetery at Agneau-sur-Seine on the outskirts of Paris. Here, the headstones attest to the sense of loss that pet owners felt towards their departed canine companions. The cemetery was a shrine to middle-class sentimentality and evidence that pet dogs were now treated as part of the family. But it was also an attempt to make the capital more hygienic and prevent owners from throwing their dead pets into the River Seine, from which thousands of canine corpses were fished out each year. At the same time, the municipal pound killed thousands of stray dogs in its lethal chamber, selling the bodies to renderers and glue makers. About the writer. Dr Chris Pearson is a lecturer in 20th century history at the University of Liverpool, specialising in environmental, animal and French history. That was A Dog's Eye View of Paris, written by Chris Pearson and read by Sally Bailey. And as I mentioned before, you can enjoy more audio content from our September issue on the iPad and iPhone editions and at historyextra.com forward slash September audio. Well, that is pretty much it for this week, but do join us next time when we'll be talking about the history of the oil industry, among other things. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook where you'll find us at History Extra. 
For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. <laughs>